Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Gardy, recording from Stats New York City Outpost. I'm Adam Forestine, coming to you from Stats Global HQ in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, back from vacation and recording from Stats San Francisco Bureau. It's Thursday, July 12th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Under pressure from President Trump, the pharma giant Pfizer agreed to postpone price hikes on some of its drugs. We'll talk about what the surprising turnaround means for drug pricing. In a rare bright spot for Alzheimer's research, a treatment from Biogen yielded positive secondary results in a mid-stage clinical trial. Mark McInerney, a veteran of the New York healthcare hedge fund biotech scene, joins us to weigh in on what to expect when the data get presented later this month. There's a preclinical biotech company called Rubius Therapeutics that wants to go public. So it rolled out a chart of its pipeline that arguably makes it seem like it's made more progress than it actually has. We'll bemoan an emerging trend, which is early stage companies that creatively present their preclinical work. And finally, we'll talk about what biotech investing is like for the little guys in the block. That is, everyday people who bet on stocks based on their own instincts and research. Retail investor Adam Singer joins us to talk about how he does it. Let's start with the most surprising news of the week. After a face-off between Pfizer CEO Ian Reid and President Trump, Pfizer made a surprising concession. Pfizer has changed course. Pfizer has said that they are going to roll back those price increases that happened just over the last little while, and they're not going to be increasing the price of their drugs after or going forward. So it all started when Pfizer raised prices at the start of this month on several dozen of its drugs. So it's very common for drug makers to raise prices on their drugs at the beginning of the year and at the mid-year mark. Pfizer's latest price hikes weren't Martin Shkreli level, but they were a bit more brazen than usual for a few reasons. For one, lots of drugs got price hiked. The percentage increases, some nearly 10%, were fairly high. And no other big drug company made a similar move. So naturally, President Trump was upset by this, and so also naturally, he turned to Twitter. So on Monday, he sent a tweet attacking Pfizer for the price hikes. Then on Tuesday night, he sent out a tweet saying that he had just talked to Ian Reid and Alex Azar, who is his Secretary of Health and Human Services, and he said that Pfizer would be rolling back the price hikes in what he called, quote, great news for the American people, end quote. So then in a statement, Pfizer confirmed the conversation with Trump and said that those drug prices would return to their pre-July 1 levels. Now, those prices will stay in effect until either the president's blueprint goes into effect or the end of the year, whichever comes sooner. Okay, so let's back up. There are a lot of unanswered questions about what went down here and how it's all going to work. So first of all, that blueprint that you referenced, that's President Trump's sort of nebulous idea to fix drug pricing. What does it mean to implement it? Um, Drew Armstrong, who's a Bloomberg editor overseeing health coverage, pointed out that it's a huge document with lots of potential policies, some of which are more realistic than others, and it would necessitate new lawmaking from Congress and lots of new regulations in order to take effect. So, like, how soon could that really happen? Right. I think that that was the at that point, that's where people said, oh, this seems a little bit cosmetic, that Pfizer is kind of giving the president what he wants and they're getting what they want. But that, you know, come the end of the year, if this blueprint is not implemented, then Pfizer will be justified in just going back and raising those prices. And then also this all falls into an interesting saga in terms of Ian Reid, CEO of Pfizer, and the sort of personality he's always had in the industry. He has long been, I, don't, I think this is fair to say, 
one of the least apologetic pharma CEOs when it comes to how the drug industry does its business. There have been these sort of panel discussions at Forbes healthcare conferences with other CEOs. And you have the likes of Brent Saunders from Allergan talking about a social contract. You have uh, Len Schliefer from Regeneron sort of attacking his own industry as being parasitic in its price hikes. And through all of those, Ian Reid has been this pillar of like, no, we charge what we charge for our medicines because they provide the value that we say they provide. And so it's interesting to see him kind of on the other side of the table here making a deal. Yeah, I mean, I think Pfizer's Ian Reid, you know, he has this tendency to underestimate political risk. This was a point that was brought up uh, early this week also by Financial Times reporter David Crow, who said if you go back and you look at, like, say, 2014, when Pfizer was trying to do an AstraZeneca deal, you know, the UK government stepped in. And then in 2016, Pfizer wanted to do a big merger with Allergan, one of these tax inversion mergers, and the Obama administration stepped in and 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 squashed that. And now you've got this drug price Trump thing coming, you know, happening here in 2018. To make a counter argument, though, are we so sure that Ian Reid got played here? Drew Armstrong, the Bloomberg editor, um, made the case on Twitter that, you know, Reid may have gotten what he wanted out of this. Uh, you know, if this deal lowers pressure on the industry, takes Trump off of the back of the industry for a while, you know, that could be a victory. So, Damien, is any of this going to matter to consumers? The short answer is probably not. So our colleagues, Aaron Mershon and Ike Sweatlitz, talked to analysts and experts on drug pricing um, who pointed out that basically because of the like complex morass by which drugs get paid for in this country, Pfizer rolling back very recently instituted increases to those list prices are very, very, very unlikely to actually show up on the balance sheets of the rank and file human beings in the United States who actually pay co-pays and have prescription drugs. And furthermore, Ian Reid's promise is not to reduce pricing in the long term or anything like that. Everybody expects Pfizer's prices to go right back up to those July 1 levels right at the end of the year or, you know, perhaps more speculatively, once this grand blueprint takes effect between now and then. So to spin it forward, do you think we're going to see more drug companies uh, postpone their drug hikes or cancel them altogether like we just saw with Pfizer? Look, I, I think, you know, you, you never can say never here, particularly if Trump starts tweeting about this. But I, it is noteworthy that, uh, you know, Celgene, for instance, raised the price of two of their drugs this week. And Bloomberg noted today, actually, that, you know, a whole host of other companies have continued to raise the prices like they normally do. So there was some big Alzheimer's news this month in that a drug from Biogen and the Japanese drug maker Asi had some positive results in a trial on more than 800 patients. So Damien, that sounds like some pretty great news. It does. Uh, however, we wanted to dive into this a little bit because it was a complicated trial and there is, I think it's safe to say and it's perhaps understating, a lot of skepticism about just what the results mean. So briefly, tell us what happened. So as, as briefly as possible, Biogen and ASI have this injectable medicine that is meant to slow down the cognitive decline that marks Alzheimer's. The idea there is that it does this by clearing out these toxic plaques called amyloids that build up in the brain. And there's a huge and years-long debate within science as to whether amyloid is actually what drives Alzheimer's. But I think for this conversation, we can skip over that for now. And did the drug work? 
Sort of. So Biogen said that in one subgroup of patients in that trial, getting the highest dose of the drug, there was an improvement in both cognition and reduction of those amyloid plaques after 18 months of treatment. But there is so much that we still don't know. For example, how big was that improvement? How many patients were in that subgroup? And then, you know, kind of digging into it, Biogen used a novel way of measuring cognitive benefit. So there's a sub-question of, will the likes of the FDA or European regulators even take that measurement seriously? So are we getting answers to these questions? Hopefully to some of them, if not all of them. So Biogen and ASI are scheduled to present fuller results from that trial at a big Alzheimer's conference later this month. No one knows exactly what they're going to divulge, but we're all standing at pretty rapt attention because if the data really are as positive as those two companies say, this could be a really big deal in a field that pretty famously hasn't seen any successes in many, many years. So to dig a little deeper into this trial and all of its implications, we thought we'd bring on Mark McInerney. Now, Mark is a longtime healthcare investor. Uh, right now, he's managing his own money, and he's doing some consulting work after stints with Visium Asset Management and Deerfield. Mark, thanks a lot for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, what did you make of last week's announcement? Well, I thought the announcement was, was, was very interesting. This was a complicated trial. And essentially, phase two trials in Alzheimer's disease have not been complicated. Um, this is the largest phase two trial that's ever been run in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it was an adaptive design trial. It's hard to get into that uh, right now. But it, it, it ensured that essentially if the drug was not working, you could deem it futile at a number of different points, and you could adapt the sample size for different doses as the trial progressed. At no point did they ever deem the trial futile. So that alone, a lot of bulls will point to that as being very encouraging. And so as we mentioned before, there's more, or theoretically, there's more data coming at this Alzheimer's conference later this month. What, Mark, are you looking for from that presentation? What, what are your outstanding curiosities that Biogen and ASI might be able to at least somewhat satisfy? Well, the, the, the primary result at 12 months was to show a clinically significant difference of 25% or greater. Now, that didn't hit at 12 months, but what they're saying at 18 months was that the high dose did see statistically significant results at a number of different time points on this new measure called the ADCOMS. As early as six months, including at 12 months, and we can assume at 18 months as well. So we just want to see exactly what that means. Um, when they say statistically significant in the new press release, what does that mean? I'm going to assume it probably means less than 25%, but it's hard to understand that, and I think most people will be really looking at the exact delta that, um, that they're talking about here. So, Mark, I guess the, the point you're trying to make and, and what you're saying is, is that something that is statistically significant may not be clinically meaningful for patients. I mean, is that so uh, essentially it sounds like you're looking for what that, you know, what that actual difference is and how, how meaningful that would be to a patient with Alzheimer's. Oh, well, exactly. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be overly bearish. I'm just We've seen this a lot of times. I'm somewhat skeptical, but at the same time, I have to say, I am a little bit encouraged because in the initial design of the trial, there were a number of different points where they could have killed this program, and they didn't do that. These, the, the, the kill points, essentially, were pre-specified. They never hit any of these points. So we can say a few things that we know. We know that the drug was engaging target because we do see that the, um, that the MRI data does seem to um, show that they are reducing the amyloid load. 
Um, so that's encouraging. And we do see that there is some movement on this new scale. Um, so, so that's encouraging. So I, I'm not going to be blindly pessimistic about this because this was a very well-designed Phase two trial. Um, so I think there are things that both sides can kind of point to and argue about until the data shown. And so what do you think, once we see what is ideally very detailed data later this month, what are the best and worst case scenarios for Biogen and ASI moving forward with this drug? Well, the best case scenario is that they, is that they have a dose and they can start a robust phase three trial. Um, the worst case scenario is that they're making hay of essentially a statistically significant signal that means nothing in the clinic. So, Mark, if the if the data do live up to that best case expectation or that best case scenario, do you think the drug is approvable now? And by now, I mean like without another clinical trial. I know that there have been some analysts out there who kind of raise that possibility. Well, I think that's that's doubtful. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you why. The, um, the, the initial design of the study um, essentially gave them a, a, an option, if you will, if they hit at the 12-month adaptive design to go to the FDA and submit. Um, that would have been a very robust effect, a clinically significant effect. That didn't happen in December. So best-case scenario, as far as I'm concerned, is that they have a dose and they can start a, a large trial with a lot of really robust information. And I, I, I don't think that's a bad outcome, to tell you the truth. Mark, we really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. One theme that we've returned to on this podcast is that there's a hearty investor appetite for biotech companies that are going public earlier and earlier. The trend means that biotech companies are going to their graphic designers earlier and earlier, too. They're asking them to draw them up a chart, breaking down their drug pipeline and the progress they've made. So if you look at these kind of charts for companies that are already testing drugs in human trials, you're used to seeing phase one, phase two, phase three, and sort of bars moving in that direction. And then everything before phase one is preclinical. So for these companies, however, where everything they do is preclinical, they're breaking down that pre-human testing into minute and often comical levels of granularity. So case in point, Rubius Therapeutics. This is a preclinical biotech company based here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and this week it announced plans to go public in what, if it succeeds, would be this year's largest biotech IPO by a factor of two. Now, the company's pipeline chart breaks down its preclinical phases into three stages, discovery, lead optimization, and IND-enabling research. And these are given equal weight to all three phases of human testing. It's important to note that Rubius is far from being the only offender here. So we pulled up a handful of other companies that have IPO'd in the past year, and they're up to the same tricks too. Some of the most egregious charts came from Unity Biotechnology, Surface Oncology, and Magenta Therapeutics. And you can inspect these charts for yourself by reading Damien's story on StatPlus. So Rebecca, I feel like you find this practice particularly annoying among all the people I've ever talked to. What about it is so irksome to you? Where do I even begin? It drives me crazy to see this willful disregard for how math works. You know, when you look at these pipeline charts that stretch and exaggerate the preclinical phase, you see these insanely long bars that graphically suggest that the company is two-thirds of the way there or three-quarters of the way through development when they don't have any human data yet. 
one Twitter user likened it to biotech's equivalent of the truncated y-axis. I think the bottom line here is that this is a tactic to gloss over the fact that real clinical trials haven't started and to exaggerate the significance of work that was done in the lab dish or in mice. And, you know, it's one thing to annoy biotech reporters, but for the unsophisticated investors at the receiving end of this information, the practice can be misleading at best and actively deceptive at worst. So, Rebecca, you and me and uh, and Damien, we wanted to come up with uh, we wanted to coin a phrase that that kind of encapsulated this practice. And you nailed it. Yes, I had a eureka moment. So I thought, you know, what do you get when you cross clinical pipelines with hype? And you get hype lines, of course. Hype lines. I just I love that, Rebecca. And it also it sort of harkened back and it it reminded me of the old Curtis Blow rap song. Pipelines. Vision, dreams of passion. So that's a tough act to follow. So anyway, this all sort of played out in public um, on Twitter in particular. And there were lots of reactions sort of siding with you, Rebecca, people who, who pointed to this trend as something that is maybe not great for industry, pointing out that if you list a molecule under the category discovery, it means you haven't discovered it yet and arguably have nothing to list. But at the same time, there was some pushback from people who pointed out that Disclosure is a good thing, and companies breaking down the various facets of quote-unquote preclinical research rather than just using an umbrella term is more information provided to investors. Yeah, that's right, Damien. The Securities and Exchange Commission makes drug companies disclose their progress to investors when they're preparing to go public. But how companies actually do that is up to them. And I think it's arguable that doing it this way gives very little information to the mom and pop investor. Yeah, I agree. When, when I look at these, I, I appreciate the differences between IND enabling studies and preclinical discovery stage work. However, if you're just saying that you're in those various phases of preclinical development without providing a timeline from which your molecule might go from one to the next and eventually into phase one, you're just using lots of words and graphics without actually providing actual information. And as you mentioned, the, the mom and pop investors That's the constituency that the SEC is actually supposed to be protecting. So, you know, I think a lot of people we saw on Twitter are like, you know, sophisticated investors who say like, well, I understand this. But I think what they're forgetting is that when you're going public, it means you are registering your shares to be sold to literally anyone with an E-Trade account. When it comes to investing in biotech stocks, there are two social classes. One is the class of so-called institutional investors, the big guys on the block like hedge funds and other money managers who bring significant resources and advantages to betting on stocks. And then there's the other class of so-called retail investors, everyday people who pick stocks based on their own research and hunches. One of the smartest and most thoughtful retail investors out there is Adam Singer. When he's not investing in biotech, he has a day job working on analytics at Google's office in San Francisco. And we should mention that he is an active member of BioTwitter. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Adam Singer. Anyway, he's here to join us today to talk about how he thinks about biotech investing as a non-professional investor. Adam Singer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Adam, for starters, tell us about how you got started investing in biotech. You know, when I joined the tech industry, I became a little bit constrained of the types of stocks I could own, you know, working at a big tech company, a lot of times having privileged information, I couldn't always buy and sell what I wanted. And I discovered that, in fact, the biotech sector was a wonderful growth area offering the similar upside 
as technology. I just sort of got my feet wet in a couple small cap companies as one does when finding a new sector, uh, started digging in more and found that there was an awesome just burgeoning biotech community online. And yeah, it was kind of a journey randomly that I discovered this wonderful, uh, very investable, but, but also, you know, high risk as well sector. So Adam, you'd mentioned to me earlier that you mostly stick to de-risked companies in phase two or phase three of clinical trials where things are relatively proven out already. Why is that? I don't have a medical science background. I have an analytics background. The early stage investing, I, I, I think, you know, you really have to be comfortable understanding the science a lot more. And I've studied it. I've read quite a few books. Uh, so I, I, I've dove in a little bit, but I'm still definitely more of an amateur understanding the hard science, which I think you need to know to go into earlier stage things. So a fun thing about biotech is that more often than not, companies fail and sometimes blow up spectacularly. And I imagine that's terrifying for investors. And so I'm curious, you know, as a retail investor without that scientific background, how do you pick your battles and place your bets knowing that quite often you'll be buying shares from institutional investors whose day job it is to study this stuff? And, you know, if they're selling it to you, it means they think they're getting a good deal. You know, it's a hard thing. First of all, institutions aren't always right. You know, they make mistakes too. They're also people. And so sometimes I I think you have to be contrarian and pick up these stocks when there's been a big sell-off because you've done your homework and you see, wait a minute, you know, this one trial wasn't great, but actually it might get approved anyway. And you don't have the baggage as an outsider. You don't have a lot of the biases that all of the institutional investors have where, you know, they, they're so entrenched in it, they can't maybe think of it in a different way. And retail investors can find advantages by charting a different course than institutional investors, right? The other thing that you can do is, um, you know, maybe have a little bit more patience than how some of the hedge funds buy and sell things. And so an example of that is Kite Pharma is a company that I identified early on, had great data with their CAR-T trials. And there were questions around whether, you know, there, there were going to be adverse reactions and cytokine syndrome. I think I said that right. Um, and I'm like, hey, you know, these seem solvable. And so I was willing to be patient and wait out all the, you know, hedge funds buying and selling uh, because it's not always just long only in biotech. There's quite a few short funds and they like to create their narrative as well. And so I think that, you know, sort of roller coaster ride in biotech does present opportunity. Sometimes you have to close your eyes and buy. And, you know, I, I think that's common in all sectors. And that's sort of what separates the the good from the great retail investors. So Adam, what's the biggest thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you first started investing in biotech? I think when you enter a biotech uh, company investment and you buy shares, you know, know if it's a trade or investment for you and don't have trades become investments, don't have investments become trades. Really be patient, see your thesis through and And trust your research and your initial homework. My very first biotech investing ideas years ago, almost all of them worked out if I had just waited. Can you point us to an example of that? You know, Unicure was a company that I I really liked. You know, I was an investor in Bluebird Bio as well. Um, And so I I made a big mistake when Bluebird ran above 100. I'm like, hey, it's reasonably priced here. I'm going to sell my blue position and I'm going to buy just a ton of Unicure, right? They have the the only company to have an approved gene therapy, their um, IP is amazing, their pipeline is great, seemed like a great company. And so I entered them just a bit too soon, and they eventually traded down quite a bit. I have some trading rules, so I got rid of my position. 
That money ended up working out somewhere else, but Unicure today trades over 40, which is about 100% higher than where I sold and I took my loss, right? And so I think like for me, just getting that confidence to be able to be, you know, per- perhaps cut in half in a position and be okay with it. And I think that only comes with experience and winning and losing enough trades. Adam Singer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Base. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Ask us questions or just rant about how horribly wrong we are, and you can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. Do 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 do